Would you please stand with me to read God's word? 2 Peter 9 through 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when, you, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this wonderful word that reminds us that we have been called out of darkness into a new and marvelous light. May you help us, Lord, to abstain from the sinful desires so that we can be an example to the world around us. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, last week... As I was coming back through customs in Detroit, if you guys have ever gone through customs, you know that that as you come back through and and you go to the customs agent and you hand them your passport and they ask you all the questions, you know, where were you and how long you were there? Why are you coming back? Do you have any like cows in your luggage or things? Um, and, And if you answer all those questions right, they give you back your passport And say, welcome home, Mr. Hannah. Every time I hear that, it is so impactful to me because it reminds me of the first time we came back. See, uh, it was four years, give or take, after we moved to Italy before I had set foot on American soil again. And in that four years, you, you, you grow and you learn the language and you start to get into a rhythm as far as the culture goes and you plant roots and, and you make friends and all of those things are great. But ironically, much of that serves to actually intensify the feeling of loneliness and isolation. Because as you grow into all of those things, you are starkly reminded every day That it doesn't matter how good I get at this language, it doesn't matter how many friends I have, I will always be an outsider in this culture. I will always be an American in Italy. And as that sense, that feeling grows, you just have this desperate desire to go back home, even if it's only for a few days. So that first time we came back on home assignment, it it was for an extended period of time. I went through customs in Atlanta. The customs agent handed me my passport and said, Welcome home, Mr. Hannah, and I melted. I was back. And those first few weeks, it, it, it was fantasy land. I, I, I saw my culture. I saw America with fresh eyes, and everything was beautiful and shiny, and the roads were wide and, and straight. And there wasn't graffiti all over the buildings. Everything looked clean. And then after a few weeks, I started to notice some different things. 
you know, again, looking back at America through fresh eyes, I started to see some things about our culture that, that I wasn't comfortable with anymore, that, that it didn't quite fit into. And I started to realize that I had returned a different person, not a better person or a worse person, just a different person. And I didn't quite fit into that place in American culture like I used to. And that was a brutal moment because it was in that moment that I realized if I'm no longer home here and I will never be home there, then I am without a home. God used that realization to remind me that in many ways, none of us have a home on this side of heaven. We are all just passing through visitors, sojourners, exiles. The Apostle Peter wrote a letter nearly 2,000 years ago to people that had that exact same feeling of being an outsider. In the first chapter of 1 Peter, Peter, Peter addresses his letter to the chosen exiles. Chosen referring to, to their position before God as his chosen people. Exiles referring to their position in the world as strangers, outsiders. They'll never quite fit in. Now, now Peter, he was often known as, as first amongst the disciples. As you see any list of the 12 disciples throughout the New Testament, he's always listed first. He was kind of the de facto leader. He was bold. He was brash. He did things that other people wouldn't do. He said things that everyone was thinking but wouldn't quite say out loud. As a result, after the the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter was the pioneer. He was the one that went out first, boldly declaring the gospel at Pentecost. He's the one that people began to follow. He was the preacher. He was the teacher. He was the one that began encouraging these new believers in this new world they were living in. And that's exactly what he was doing with this letter of 1 Peter. He was writing a letter to these exiles. These these men and women that were living in these towns and villages in the Roman Empire, encouraging them so that they may live as persecution was growing. So that these believers that were scattered all around the known world may persevere through this suffering. Because it was in the suffering that they were following in the footsteps of their Savior, Jesus Christ, by whose suffering and death and resurrection they were saved. That's 1 Peter. But it's not just this rah-rah encouragement, be strong, brothers. 
No, no, Peter, being this practical, blue-collar fisherman, he gives them some practical, real examples of what this looks like. Encouraging them to live in this persecution, encouraging them to persevere in their suffering, and giving them practical examples. And we see that in this passage that Joanna read for us this morning. Look back with me at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Now, when Peter uses that phrase Gentiles, that's a euphemism for for the world, for non-believers. The Romans, people that don't follow Christ. He's, he's telling these people in these towns and villages in the Roman Empire, conduct yourselves honorably in the midst of the world. So that when they slander you as evildoers. So that when they slander you. The word he doesn't use there is if. If they speak against you. If they slander you. No, Peter recognizes that as exiles in this world, as sojourners in this world, we will always be analyzed and scrutinized more than anyone else. You know, here we find ourselves suddenly in the heart of football season. I know, I hate to use sports analogies, but, but in, in this one, in the South, it just makes good sense. Jacob, when you go to a football game and you're wearing the other team's colors, don't you feel everyone looking at you? You go to an Alabama game, you're wearing Auburn colors. Everybody is going to be focused on you and your behavior. They're going to be analyzing you. They're going to be scrutinizing you. You can do the exact same thing that everybody else does. But when you do it, it's going to be blown up, right? When you're an outsider, you're always going to be looked at. And Peter understood that. And he says... Live honorably in that place so that when they slander you, what will happen? They will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Live rightly, conduct yourself honorably so that the world will glorify God. So that the world will see their creator, right? We love this, and so many of us have have kind of lived our lives this way. It's that whole thing of, all right, all right, I got it. How to make disciples. Well, I'm I'm just going to be a good person, and then my coworkers or my neighbors or my family members that don't know Jesus eventually will say, hey, Hannah, what's different about you? And I'll be like, Jesus. And... (laughs) And then they're also going to know Jesus, and we're all going to live happily ever after. Right? Amen. Who wants to close this with prayer? Guys, I'm here to tell you this morning, 
it rarely, if ever, works that way. Because the way we apply this to our lives is we say, okay, okay, okay. I'm going to not cuss. And by not cussing, um, the guy in the cubicle next to me is going to say, hey, Hannah, why do you say, dang it, and flipping? And I'm going to say, Jesus. And they're going to run to Jesus. Or we say, um, when everybody goes out and gets a martini after work, I'm going to get a Diet Coke. And, and, and they're going to say, hey, Hannah, why are you drinking a Diet Coke? Jesus. And, and they're all going to want Jesus. Guys, it doesn't work that way because nobody runs to the Savior so that they don't cuss. Nobody says, I desperately want to live a life without foul language, so I'm going to find Jesus. That's not what Peter's talking about. In fact, he goes on to give practical examples of what this looks like in the verses immediately following this, verses 13 through 17. Peter talks about submission. Submit yourself to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors. Now, we read that today and we're like, okay, all right, all right, I get it, I get it. I'm a Democrat and there's a Republican in office and so I'm just going to live my life and it's going to be fine and Jesus. You need to understand the context in which Peter was writing this. When Peter says submit to the emperor as the supreme authority on this earth, the emperor at the time was Nero. If if you know anything about world history, Nero was a bad dude. What Nero figured out was he could do anything he wanted to because all he had to do was blame it on the Christians. And then everybody would rise up against them. You know, we all, we all hear about Nero fiddled while Rome burned. What we know is he didn't actually fiddle because it wasn't invented yet. But he did actually set Rome on fire. He did so because he wanted to get rid of a lot of the old buildings so that he could build new marble palaces to himself. And how he got away with it was blaming it on the Christians. Guys, look out. Christians, there's an uprising. Go get them. In this world... Very real and grotesquely violent persecution was at their doorstep. When Peter tells these exiles, submit to the authority here on earth, he is saying persecution is coming, suffering is coming. Submit to that as your Savior modeled for you. And in the midst of that suffering, the way that you live is how people will see Jesus. It's not because you don't use certain language. It's because of the way you live as the pressures of life, the pain of life, attack you from all sides. It's in that that people will see Jesus. All right, Hannah, well, how do we do that? 
Peter tells us in this passage, because you see all of that, the submission, the living honorably among the world, is born out of verses 9 and 10. Look back with me at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Mercy. Guys, in these verses, Peter is reminding us of our very identity. We have been singing about it all morning long. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. I'm a child of God. I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say that I am. A chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The God of the universe looked at you knowing every nook and cranny of your soul every thought, every desire, every mistake. And he said, I choose you. And this isn't, this isn't uh, being chosen last in kickball on the playground thing. All right, there's Hannah. I guess he's got to be over here. Been there. No, God looked through the crowd and sought you out and said, I choose you. Isn't that what we all want? To be, to be chosen, to be loved, to be desired, to be wanted. And as a chosen person, you are a part of a royal priesthood. Do you know what that means? The royal priests were the ones that had direct access to the king. Didn't have to go through anybody else. As a part of a royal priesthood, we have direct access through our identity in Jesus Christ to the creator of the universe. And we've become a holy nation. Holy meaning set aside for a specific purpose. A holy nation set aside for God's glory. The moment you look at Jesus and you say, I'm yours, this is who you become. When Nick and I were adopting our son, I don't know how many of you know the way the adoption process works, but, but you bring the child home and that's not the end of it. They've got to do home visits and home studies, and there's still more paperwork to fill out, and it, it takes a matter of time. And after a few months, you go before a judge in court, 
And that judge asks you a bunch of questions and looks at your file and looks at the child and looks at the history. And I will never forget that day. And after all of that, the judge said these words. It is hereby declared that this minor child will be regarded and treated in all respects as the child of David Michael Hanna and Nicole Faith Hanna. And that child shall bear the name Atticus James Thornton Hanna. What has been done will never be undone. And then he banged his cap. And at that sound, from that moment, that baby was my son, and he will always be. It's who he is. We live our lives desperately searching for our identity. We define ourselves by our relationships. We define ourselves by our children, by our careers, by our success, by our sexual orientation, by our political affiliation, by what the world says that we are. But you see, as followers of Christ, none of that matters because our identity is defined by him and him alone. Let God's words define you. Let his words remind you of who you already Has everybody in here seen The Lion King? If you have not, it's been like 25 years, so I think we have passed the statute of limitations on spoilers. Um, You can cover your ears if you don't want to know, but Simba wins in the end. Now, there was a moment where you don't know if that's going to be the case. He had run from all of his problems, right? He was out in the jungle, Akuna Matata, all that good stuff. And then there was that time that his father, the king, speaks to him from on high. Does any of this sound familiar? And he says, Simba, you are more than what you have become. Remember who you are. You are my son, the one true king. You see, you see, Simba didn't become king when he goes back to Pride Rock and he overthrows Scar. He went back to Pride Rock and he overthrew Scar because he was king. It is our life that flows out of our identity, not the other way around. 
Our lives are not an arbitrary list of things we should do and things we shouldn't do. It's not an arbitrary list of things that are necessary to become a holy nation. Any and all of those things are the fruit of our identity. And our identity isn't from our color or our culture or our success or our status. Our identity is our chosenness. So, does this mean that as a chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation that's called to live honorably in the world, that we have to be perfect? Of course not. Of course not. But it does mean that you will be changed. You see... Change in your life because of the gospel is not obligatory. It is inevitable. I want to say that again. Change in your life because of the gospel, it's not obligatory. It's not something you have to do. It's not, I know Jesus, therefore now I have to be changed. It is inevitable. When you know Jesus, you will be changed. For the past few weeks, we've been discussing how to make disciples, what it means to be a disciple. Gospel conversations and and relationships and all of those things. We've been giving you tools and practical examples of what it looks like to make disciples, to live in those relationships. But why would anyone listen to us if the thing that we say defines us has made no impact on our lives? You see, it is the change that the gospel brings that gives our words weight, that gives our testimony meaning. When the world looks at your life and glorifies God, it is because of the change that God has brought about in your life. If this morning you self-identify as a follower of Jesus, I want you to take just a minute And think about your life post-Jesus. And compare it to your life pre-Jesus. And ask yourself what's different. If you can't answer the question... of how your life is being changed by the gospel. This morning, I would remind you of who you are. A child of the king, chosen 
by the creator of the universe. Embrace your identity and allow your life to flow from that. Would you pray with me this morning? You're a good, good father. It's who you are. And I am loved by you. That's who I am. Chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say I am this morning. Lord, we ask, we beg, remind us of our identity in you. Drown out all of the other voices. Allow our lives to flow from our identity as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It is in your precious son's name that we pray. Amen.